You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fong. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 156. I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm joined on the line this morning by Dr. Michael Farmer. He's an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. How are things up there, Michael? They're pretty good, Nathan. This is our last week of classes before spring break, so when this drops, I will be on a boat in the Caribbean. Very good, very good. And also on the line with me from McPherson, Kansas, it is Dr. David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. David, how are things in Kansas? Oh, pretty decent. Um, Also our last week of classes before spring break. But when this episode drops, I will not be on a boat. You should have said you would, and so the listeners would imagine that you and I were going on vacation together, David. (laughs) Oh, the the Christian humanist odyssey. <laughs> that, that would actually be kind of fun. You can book those. I, I'm not actually suggesting we do this, but you can book like group group cruises for organizations. We could we could go on a cruise with all our listeners. Oh yeah, there there are podcasts out there who do listener cruises. Yeah, see my immediate my immediate connection was Duck Dynasty. <laughs> oh, and I was I was thinking like. Uh, a lot of the Disney podcasts go on cruises, but they go on Disney cruises, so that makes sense. I, I'm not yeah. sure. I'm not sure our audience is, by and large, the cruise audience. <laughs> nor, nor do I think all of our hosts are cruise hosts. I'm not sure any not. of our hosts are cruise hosts. I booked this before <laughs> I had a chance to think about what a bad idea it was. <laughs> Don't think that. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that works out. Think uh, endless 24-hour buffets. There you go. There you go. Well, any folks, anyway, folks, I want to remind you that the Christian Humanist Radio Network is expanding. Uh, pretty soon we're going to have a fifth show to offer you, the Woo-hoo. Pietist Schoolman podcast hosted by Chris Gertz. It's going to be an exploration of Christian education through a pietist lens. Uh, hopefully we can get him to extend it beyond that initial interview series as well and just keep Chris Garrett's on the airwaves because he's awesome. I believe We've he has also... plans to go beyond that first. He's, okay, right, he, right. he sent us the plans for his show, and it's it, it puts us to shame. Like We never plan more than a week out. He's got, <laughs> uh, he's, he's, got he, he's got a lot of plans that, that make me kind of embarrassed for what we do. He does. He does. Uh, but, of course, you can also listen to the Christian Feminist Podcast, to Book of Nature Podcast, which should have a new episode before too long, and to Christian Humanist Profiles, our interview show. Uh, David's recent interview with Kevin Van Hooser is especially good. I recommend that you subscribe to that feed. But right now, we're going to take a look at, a, a, at some subject matter that a listener requested. Seth Porch, who is a former student of mine, 
and a listener to the podcast requested a while back that we do an episode on John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, so I figured, you know, one of my favorite uh, texts from that sort of early American period is the epistolary exchange between those two thinkers. Uh, in their old age, after they had both been president, they continue to ex- exchange letters really up to the end of their lives. And they are just a treasure trove of political thought, philosophical thought. It's really fascinating to watch these two go at it. But first, Michael noted recently that we don't do as much autobiography as we used to, so this struck me as a good episode to try a little bit of that. David, when you were growing up, what place did the names Adams and Jefferson hold in your own mythology, and what art and what stories accompanied those two names? Well, in terms of Jefferson, the only art that really accompanied the name was the nickel. Um, I mean, yeah, once I got had American history textbooks and, and kind of later middle school, there were pictures of you know, the various early American presidents. So I had those, I had those images, but for me, Thomas Jefferson was mostly the the guy on the nickel. Um, Adams, I had no mental picture of, even when there was an illustration of him in the textbook, it did not hang in my memory. He is not super iconic. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) I'm I'm sorry. He just doesn't have the Jeffersonian profile. It's, you know, it's just true. (laughs) If, If we love Thomas, if if we love John Adams, it's it's not because he's picturesque. Um, also, I was uh, you know reader, uh, readers listeners may recall that I was homeschooled, and while things are a lot more diverse these days in the homeschooling world, um, when I was coming up through, uh, it was pretty typical for homeschoolers to be pretty gung ho patriotic for a kind of very highly Christianized, even hagiographic presentation of American history. And in that presentation of history, which you can go read the light and the glory yourself, dear listener, um, in that particular presentation of history, Jefferson tends to be the devil term, and Adams tends to be the God term. Adams is the one who has all the nice quotes about Jesus, and Mm -hmm. Thomas Jefferson is the one who chops up his Gospels. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, at least they go that far. I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna present Jefferson. They were gonna present Jefferson as like some sort of evangelical. I mean, at oh, least they're honest about who Jefferson is. So they didn't go full on Glenn back then. No, Jefferson Carmen. was in 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 what I knew about American about the founding fathers growing up. Thomas and Jefferson was the bad one. He was the one that you're like, why did all the other guys hang out with him? He's so obviously wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I found out later on, uh, and these letters kind of really helped confirm this impression, is that in the telling of American history that I was being presented from in various venues, was Thomas Jefferson was kind of the their scapegoat on whom they dumped all the sins of you know deism and enlightenment skepticism and he was the one who got to bear all of those sins so the other founding fathers could come off as saints <laughs> I, I mean um, I, I have to at least you have to kind of respect it because at least they're looking at somebody honestly my, my experience <laughs> with that sort of hagiography hey, I, I, I mentioned Carmen a moment ago that there's that America Again song where he I, I just pulled up the lyrics 
Oh, I, I thought you were talking about the opera. I'm no, like, no, what no, in Carmen, the world? Carmen, the, the kind of hacky <laughs> Vegas, <laughs> the sort of hacky Vegas Christian singer. Yeah, yeah. You know when, when like she, you know, she like cheats on the Toreador and he stabs her. Well, that's like Jefferson. But no, 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 listen to this. But something happened since Jefferson called the Bible the cornerstone for American liberty, then put it in our schools as a light. Or since give me liberty or give me death, Patrick Henry said, our country was founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We eliminated God from the equation of American life, thus eliminating the reason this nation first began, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then here's my favorite part. Even as a kid, I knew this was off. These men believed you couldn't even <laughs> call yourself an American if you subvert the word of God. Oh, Jefferson's literally taking a pair of scissors to the gospels. <laughs> <sighs> So I mean, say what you will about your homeschool education. It's a it's a it's a step up from the the kind of Christianism of of that song, which was hugely popular when I, in in my youth group. All right. Well, Michael, we I I, I guess we kind of lateral to you rather than going around the horn. But go ahead and keep firing away. Is there any other bits of Adams and Jefferson lore that you remember from your own youth? Not really. I mean, I I um. I, I think I first encountered Jefferson the way I first encountered a lot of things, which is a character in a cartoon. There's a there's a Disney short called Ben and Me where a mouse helps uh. Ben Franklin do all his achievements, and, and Jefferson is a character in there. So still, like, my first thought of Jefferson as a cartoon, mm-hmm. um, which I'm sure says more about me than about anything else. Um, a- Adams, I, like David, I, you know, Adams is not a figure they they throw to a lot of children for whatever reason, maybe because he's kind of has a scary face. Um, <laughs> maybe also because he was a pretty big failure as a president. You know, he didn't do his, his most notable accomplishment is the alien sedition acts. Mm. Uh, so, you know, but uh, I did read the David McCulloch biography of Adams. That was so big 10, 15 years ago. I, re- I read that in college and enjoyed it. And, and, uh, It'll give you an appreciation for Adams as a person, if not as a president. McCulloch does not, mm-hmm. best I can remember, like try to redeem his reputation as an actual politician. But as a as a man, you come out kind of liking him more. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, and and again, it's it's funny the idiosync- idiosyncrasies. Pardon me of our education. Uh, for some reason, when I was coming up. What always got emphasized about Jefferson is that he was an inventor. So I, for some reason, I had this picture in my head of this mad scientist that they elected president. <laughs> and I thought that was awesome. And I, you know, uh, you know, when, when, I, when I held that up next to, you know, Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush, I'm like, these guys aren't mad scientists. What happened? What went wrong? It's funny. They're like trying to turn Jefferson into Franklin. Yeah, yeah, they really did. And, you know, they they emphasized, you know, that at his Virginia home, you know, he invented this and he invented that and so on and so forth. And, you know, like I said, I that that's kind of the picture I had of him. Adams, it's interesting because in 10th grade, uh, we watched the movie version of the musical 1776. So really from high school on up till, you know, I started reading more seriously in high school, in college, pardon me. Um, I had that musical's picture of those two men in my head, which is to say that Jefferson was this, you know, love-smitten, uxorious figure who, you know, almost didn't write the Declaration of Independence because he missed his wife so badly. 
and John Adams was the perpetual contrarian who nobody liked because he wouldn't shut up. Uh, so, you know, that's the, you know, it's, it's the sort of, you know, stage musical version of the two figures that I carried with me until much later on when I started reading their letters from old age, you know, from 40 years after 1776, not the musical, but the actual year in history. So, Michael, most of our listeners in the United States will at least know the names Adams and Jefferson as the second and third presidents. All right. So as we consider their correspondence, um, could you give us a bit of narrative background on how, how these two American early, early American thinkers, pardon me, related to each other during a few high points of their careers? Were they besties? Were they frenemies? Would they set their Facebook relationship status to It's Complicated? Very current and relevant language there, Nathan. Thanks for that. <laughs> Complicated's a good word. Um, they they got along uh, for a long time. And Adams is actually largely responsible for Jefferson writing the Declaration of Independence. Um, he, he's, he's the one who suggested him. Uh, but they ended up political rivals because they come from opposite parties. Uh, Adams was a federalist, so he believed in a strong federal government. And uh, Jefferson was what was then called a Democratic Republican, which I don't know. It's the best way to think of it is probably that that term you sometimes hear Jeffersonian Republic Republican, the 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 kind of agricultural conservative. I, I don't know. I don't know how best to describe that. But anyway, they were political rivals, and and their campaign to be the second president of the United States, because you got to remember back then the vice president was the second place winner of the president, the presidency race. Mm-hmm. So Adams won and Jefferson uh, lost. And so he became the vice president, uh, which I guess has things to recommend it. But anyway, it was one of the ugliest races in American political history. Uh, Jefferson's team accused Adams of wanting to be king. He was often called King John, in fact, because because of this, you know, his emphasis on a strong federal government. And then uh, Adams's team uh, called Jefferson, in, in what may be my favorite phrase from American political history, a progenitor of mulattoes. Uh, <laughs> one of those claims at least turned out to be true. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Adams did not Jeez. want to be king, you know. So, uh, so I think I think their friendship pretty much soured at that point, uh, only to be rejuvenated huh. in the years after their presidencies. Because, well, I mean, if you, it makes sense if you think about it, right? People are always surprised to see like the Bushes hanging out with uh, the Clintons, with, with the Clintons, but. <laughs> There's always, at any given point in history, a limited number of people who can understand what it's like to run a country. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it makes sense that because they have this huge thing in common, they would be able to put aside the things they didn't have in common. And and in one of those weird little coincidences of history, both of them died on July 4th, 1826, uh, 40 years to the – well, not to the day after the signing of the Declaration of Independence, but 40 years to the day after the day we claim is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Right, right. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure uh, if you're writing a hagiography of either of these guys, you're going you're gonna to point to that date as being uh, some sort of divine intervention. Uh, but, yeah, so it was a complicated relationship, and they disagreed on a lot of things, as you can tell them from the, the, the three letter exchanges we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Today, they disagreed well into their old age, but they uh, they disagreed in the context of a friendship rather than the context of a political rivalry. 
Mm-hmm. David, I mean, is there anything about their biography that you would add, or are we going to leave that to our Americanist? Honestly, no. Um, though uh, the the political rivalry, I do remember it being emphasized in my education. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reasons for it tended to be glossed over because the uh, because Adams taking the side of strong central government and Jefferson not oh of course um, yeah would not have necessarily aligned with the uses to which they were being put. Oh, fascinating. This is this is yet another reason not to speak of what the founding fathers thought in bulk because they thought a right. lot of things and argued amongst themselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. And there mm-hmm. and there were uh, contrary to to a kind of conservative position you sometimes hear today there were founding fathers who believed in a strong federal government. I mean I, I don't know how many liberals today would like to claim Adams because he did a lot of things people aren't going to sign off on <laughs> but but the, the this idea that the founding fathers all looked like name your favorite conservative commentator today is just patently absurd some of them some of them might have but right. n- not all of them right and, and of course i mean this is a recurring theme on this show right i mean there's no such thing as what the founding fathers think there's no such thing as the position of the greek philosophers in the plural there's no such thing as the early Christian view, the singular early Christian <laughs> view. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, all of these things reward a careful examination of the dispute at hand. Well, David, I, I want to turn to these texts at hand. And listeners, I want to pause here and say that if you are on our Facebook page, and if you're not, you should be, uh, you will find links to these letters. Uh, but, David, I want to address one of the things that American religious life keeps throwing at me, and it just puzzles the heck out of me. But it is baked into this correspondence. So in his June 28, 1813 letter to Thomas Jefferson, John Adams insists that, quote, the general principles, unquote, of Christianity are not only immutable but stand as the foundation for for political liberty. Uh, So, I mean, it sounds a little bit Carmen there. Uh, What's even more, more bizarre... He cites some notable critics of Christianity as agreeing with him. So in his letter, and its neighbors if you like, how does Adams construe Christianity, and how much can we see his conception of things persisting in American life? This was, uh, this was one of the sets of letters that uh, I think definitely put the lie to, to the uses that Jefferson and Adams were put to. Um, in uh, my, my earlier acquaintance with them, um, with Adams being the one who said all the nice things about Christianity and, you know, Jefferson being the man with evil scissors. <laughs> um, evil scissors. <laughs> evil scissors. <laughs> um, yeah. Like a it, World of Warcraft plan. <laughs> uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, you know, I already kind of knew where he stood but not having read these letters before, I, I'd never heard Adam speak quite this clearly, though I had heard rumors. Mm-hmm. Um, so what kind of Christianity is he talking about that is, you know, this, this uh, foundation of, uh, of political liberty? Well, um, he's, he, he refers to this gathering of young men, an army of fine young fellows... 
uh, he calls them, uh, which includes, and then he gives a list. After, by the way, he writes huzzah in one of his letters. Oh, I yeah? Could, I couldn't help but think of David Grubbs there. Yeah, about three paragraphs <laughs> up from there, he says, huzzah, my brave boys. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, carry on, carry on. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, an army of fine young fellows, uh, brave boys, uh, to whom one would say huzzah. Um, So, yeah. So he then then kind of uh, lays out the demographics of this fine young army. Um, It includes Roman Catholics, English Episcopalians, Scotch and American Presbyterians, Methodists, Moravians, Anabaptists, German Lutherans, German Calvinists, and you're like, man, it's so ecumenical. It's nice. Universalist, oh, Arians, Priestlians, Socinians, oh, Independents, <laughs> Congregationalists, Horse Protestants, and House Protestants, uh huh, Deists and Atheists and Protestants. I'll let Michael read that phrase. Uh, I'm sorry, I, I have gone away from it to look up what horse Protestant means. <laughs> yes, and I actually did a Google Translate on that phrase. It means uh, people who don't believe anything, right? Yeah, Protestants who believe nothing at all. Yeah. Protestants who believe nothing at all. I've known um, a few of those. Yes, yes. <laughs> so horse Protestants and house Protestants, what are those? I, 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 could, I, I could not find out what it is, I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, okay. I mean, my guess is that's a reference to, like, roundheads and cavaliers. Oh? oh okay. It, it means as good a Protestant as Oliver Cromwell's horse. The expression arises in a comparison made by Cromwell respecting some person who had less discernment <laughs> than his horse in the moot points of the Protestant controversy. Oh, well, there you go. So I got it exactly backwards. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So he says, very few, however, of several of these species... So no one's the majority in this group. Nevertheless, all educated in the general principles, italics, of Christianity and the general principles of English and American liberty. So whatever the general principles of Christianity they are, there's something that can be boiled down to the common denominator between Roman Catholics and a horse. <laughs> well, also deists and atheists. Yeah, Yeah. deists, atheists, Protestants who believe nothing. Um, (laughs) And not only deists and atheists, but but also Arians, uh, Universalists, which I assume he's referring to the Unitarian Universalists, Mm -hmm. uh, Priestlians, who I think were also Unitarians, Socinians, um, also a kind of flavor of Unitarian. Right, Priestlian, Um, Unitarian, by the way. Oh, he was not Unitarian? What was he? No, he is a yeah, Unitarian. Yeah, I was going to say, oh, he yeah, is yeah. Unitarian. famously I'm sorry, I, I mumbled there. Yeah, okay. Um, so whatever this general principles of Christianity are, they're things that, that, that Catholics, um, magisterial reformation, radical reformation, uh, Arians, universalists, atheists, deists, and people who don't care about religion at all have in common. (laughs) Which, uh, I don't know, he he doesn't really enlarge much upon those, he just keeps referring to general principles, general principles, which I can, uh, I'm left with the assumption that the general principles of Christianity are 
um, whoever or whatever God might be, in the main, it's still generally a bad idea for civilized persons to murder, steal, and commit adultery. This mm-hmm. just goes to show you that the the practice of constructing the Greco-Roman worldview or what have you is not a 21st century phenomenon. <laughs> that even a man as erudite and intelligent as John Adams could have could have written something this fundamentally stupid. And, and can we agree this is fundamentally a stupid thing to yeah. say? Well, <laughs> later on, what what really bakes my noodle is that later on he says I could fill sheets of quotations from Frederick of Prussia from Hume, Gibbon, Bolingbroke, Rousseau, and Voltaire, as well as Newton and Locke, not to mention thousands of divines and philosophers of inferior fame. And I'm thinking, Hume, Gibbon, Perdon? <laughs> well, well, I don't know. If, it, if his general Christianity is something that apparently, you know, deists and horses can believe in, <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe Hume's in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and and I guess what, what what this sets in my mind is that you know when people say you know America was founded as a Christian nation, I, I honestly have to say yes, you're right, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it, I mean it's worth noting Adams himself Unitarian. Uh, divide, mm-hmm. Denied the divinity of Christ, denied the Trinity, denied all the other things that I think most people would probably say are pretty important to to the Christian <laughs> confession. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I was reading a I was reading a book uh, last night um, entitled "Delighting in the Trinity." Um, that in the uh, in the op- opening the opening move of the book in the introduction is that. Uh, that basically Trinitarianism is the sine qua non. Um, and so uh, Michael Reeves is the author of that. Right. By the way. Without which not listeners. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and apparently not, not so much for Adams. Um, apparently Chris, the general principles of Christianity can exist without theism. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> which is because what he's talking about here, right. is a moral system. Right, yes. but even then, yes. I'm not sure you could get Hume behind it. I, I was just rereading Principles of Morals the other day, and and he throws out this whole host of traditional religious virtues, the monkish virtues, he calls them. Mm-hmm. Right, and and one of the things that this brings to my attention is that you know what we think of as an assertion of Christian identity is decidedly a sort of post enlightenment phenomenon, right? Uh, I mean, it's something that you have to do in the wake of people like Jefferson and Adams and Voltaire and Hume and so on and so forth. You know, so it's it's interesting. I mean, you know, it is it it makes reference to and it has its roots in ancient traditions, but it's something that becomes a new kind of necessity in the age after Jefferson and the age after Adams. I mean, let's not pretend that Jefferson wrote this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, well, a- a- Adam Adams wrote that one, and you know, can we read some of the things that Jefferson said? Hit it, man! Hit it. Because lousy. <laughs> um, uh, I remember to have heard Doctor Priestley say, uh, and uh, they love him some Doctor Priestley. Yeah, they were all oh, good yeah. buddies. Uh, yeah, that if all England would candidly examine themselves and confess, they would find that Unitarianism was really the religion of all. <laughs> um, uh, oh. 
It is too late in the day for men of sincerity to pretend they believe in the platonic mysticisms that three are one and one is three, and yet one is not three and three are not one, to divide mankind by a single letter into homoousios and homoousios. <laughs> this constitutes the craft, the power, and the profit of the priests. Sweep away their gossamer fabrics of factitious religion, and they would catch no more flies. <laughs> Oh, oh and, and he has more like that. I mean, oh, I yeah, yeah. Uh, the one, uh, oh, it's one of the later ones where he describes, uh, well, he calls them cannibal priests. Um, yeah, there, there's a later letter in which he's talking about the Catholic Church and basically lays out this whole string of what presumably must have been scary adjectives to, you know, uh, an enlightened gentleman of the, you know, late 18th, early 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, everything that's wrong with the world apparently comes from the Catholic Church. Well, and, and including oh, yeah, the Trinity. Yeah. And, and like many another radical person, he claims that he's the real conservative, right? The, the, all mm. these other, all these other traditions are corruptions of original Christianity, which magically looks exactly like what he believes. And right, clearly right. Jesus would look just like Jefferson, you know, cleaned up probably. You a, know. a progenitor of mulattoes? <laughs> and See, I, I, I was thinking about the guy on the nickel, but okay. red hair, <laughs> probably. Oh goodness! Well, I, I, now now that Michael's thrown that phrase in for that set of letters, I do want to move on to the next one, Michael. <laughs> another fascinating idea that arises in these men's letters to each other is natural aristocracy. Uh, what does the phrase even mean? And how do Adams and Jefferson disagree on its significance and how it how it plays a role in conversations about political constitutions? Well, central to the understanding of of large swaths of early Americans is this notion that whereas Europe is founded on these dynastic families, America is going to to some degree or another, make all equal. Now, the degree to which that's going to happen is going to be different depending on who you talk to. But mm -hmm. they're all going to agree that we're going to be more equal here than in Europe, and you're not going to get these these long-standing arist aristocratic dynasties. Right. Adams, yeah. Adams' letter, the way I read it, is a practical argument more than any kind of like metaphysical argument. Whether this natural aristocracy, whether whether good breeding, good families, whether that actually exists or not, people believe in it, and and you're going to be foolish to attempt to form a society that doesn't at least bow to it, because the people believe in it, and they're going to they're going to rebel against the notion that everybody is entirely equal. So so Adams is promoting this idea of a gentleman um of of good birth, good extraction, nobility of mind, magnanimity, all of that stuff. He 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 says you're going to have to at least take note of it. Jefferson does not disagree with this. Um J Jefferson ag agrees that there is such a uh such a thing as as natural aristocracy, but he doesn't think so much it has to do with what family you come from as what sort of virtues you have. And so Jefferson gets us much closer to the idea of meritocracy, which uh, I was going to say kind of 
rains today, but I'm not sure it exactly does. I, I think the Jeffersonian vision of meritocracy looks very different from from the kind of entrepreneurial version of meritocracy that we we sometimes get here get tossed yeah, around today. Mm-hmm. That, that what he's what he's talking about is is a uh, oh you know nobility of mind is probably the best way to talk about it. I think it's 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 people who are contemplative and and genius and virtuous uh not necessarily people who just succeed at everything they do because of course jefferson himself did not succeed at everything he did and he was not a very good like manager of money for example um he was from virginia to be fair (laughs) but but yeah so so both of them are promoting this notion of natural aristocracy in the sense of who you are as opposed to artificial aristocracy, which would mean like what family you come from, what castle you own. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there are there are real differences in people, but those differences don't just fall down on party lines. Right, David. What would you add to that? Don't really have a whole lot um, to add, uh, though. I did find. Uh, the 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 continual reference in in Adam's letter to the breeding of livestock and <laughs> you know al- almost this kind of you know aristocracy of eugenics um, it was uh, I don't know that feels feel, feels weird now mm-hmm. although certainly I mean as you know the father of children who have two PhD parents or soon will have. You've heard some of that. Yeah. <laughs> I I don't know. I don't know. I mean, most, right. and, most, and maybe most... it's because my kids are school age, but I mean, whenever we go to talk with Micah's teachers, I mean, at some point, the com- someone's going to make the comment, oh, you can tell he's got two teachers for parents. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> though, though most of the teacher parents that I know tend to tend to focus way more on technique and praxis than they do trust to the strength of their genes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. To be sure, to be sure. But you know, I, I guess the uh, some kind of natural aristocracy in some form is filtering down there. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, what what jumps out at me about this exchange of letters? is, first of all, the fact that they are writing lines of Greek poetry to each other in their correspondence. Right, yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, try to imagine, you know, George W. Bush and Bill Clinton ex- exchanging lines of Theogonus to each other. Just and failed. Yeah. I, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, uh, you know the, the rumor about Jefferson, I, I, don't, I can't verify what this is true, is that he could write at the same time with his left hand in Latin and with his right hand in Greek. And see, I think I've heard that legend attributed to other people too. Right? Yeah, it sounds it sounds it sounds not true. Right? Right? It, it's one of those you know fastest gun east of the Mississippi sort of things. Yeah, I was about <laughs> to say, how did he have time? Uh, how did he not house? have time? Like, like how else could he have done all the things he wanted to do unless he was writing two letters at one time? Uh, <laughs> nice. Fair but, enough. Yeah. But but the other thing that occurs to me is, is first of all, I mean, I can't ignore the fact that, you know, a little bit more than 10 years after this, you know, John Adams' own son is going to be president. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, Jefferson doesn't really deny that certain people are, you know, well, let, let, let me set it up differently. I mean, Adams' main 
concern with denying any sort of hereditary aristocracy is that, you know, instead of people being brought into office for their wisdom and virtue, they're going to be brought in for their money and their good looks. Not that that's borne out in modern politics at all. No. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, Jefferson says, well, I mean, you don't eliminate that by making aristocracy hereditary because the same families that have power tend also to have money. So it's one of those things that's interesting because neither one of them seems to have a good uh, solution to what I call the Plato's Meno dilemma, right? That the gods seem to distribute virtue arbitrarily. Mm. Of course, they both hate Plato, but that's that's later on down the show notes, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> but fact of the matter is they can't solve his problems. So <laughs> take yep. that, Jefferson and Adams. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, David, I, I, I want to go to our third set of letters here, uh, largely because, you know, Michael's not yet on spring break as I am and still has to teach today. Jefferson's letter from the 5th of July, 1814, takes up three of my own fascinations. Uh, number one, Napoleon Bonaparte. Number two, Plato's Republic. And number three, education. Jefferson can't stand Napoleon or Plato, it seems, and he doesn't seem all that keen on education as it stands in 1814. What does Jefferson find so odious in the old Greek and the new Corsican, and how do he and Adams bring that conversation to bear on teaching in the new republic? Hmm. Um, oh, I guess we should talk about uh, Napoleon first, uh, the Attila of the age the ruthless destroyer of tens of millions of the human race, whose thirst for blood appeared unquenchable, the great oppressor of the rights and liberties of the world. Um, but he had a lovely singing voice. <laughs> <laughs> he was a good bowler, he, too, as I recall. <laughs> uh, I was going to say he probably liked it. He probably liked his dog. I, you know. I think his dog's um, name was Ziggy Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. Uh, well, li listeners younger than 30 were making Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure references. <laughs> okay. Yeah, he should have perished on the swords of his enemies under the walls of Paris, says Jefferson. Um, <laughs> for his uh, own good, right? Like, it would have been better for, for Napoleon if that had happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he probably would have liked that one. Um, so... Jefferson just I don't I don't I don't suppose that this is so much analysis as it is just sort of Jefferson going mm -hmm. Napoleon how I hate that guy um uh, it, the main difference between um him and uh Adams is that Jefferson um uh, he refers to him as uh, he, he's an Attila, he's a tyrant, um, and at what point, uh, at one point, uh, refers to him, I believe it, it refers to him as a usurper, mm -hmm. um, because Adams picks up on that, and Adams is like, look, I'm not a Napoleon super fan, but <laughs> didn't they vote for the guy? Mm-hmm. Um, you know... It, well, here, here's here's Adams. Uh, Napoleon is a military fanatic like Achilles, Alexander, Caesar, Muhammad, uh, Zingus, Cooley. I don't know who that is. <laughs> um, and Charles the Twelfth, right? 
Um, the maximum principle of all of them was the same. But is it strict to call him a usurper? Was not his elevation to the Empire of France as legitimate and authentic a national act as that of William III or the House of Hanover to the throne of the Three Kingdoms, or as the election of Washington to the command of our army or Burn. to the chair of the state? <laughs> and then Adams drops his mic and walks away. <laughs> Um, no, he doesn't do that. He keeps writing because that's the way these guys roll. They they just don't stop writing. That, that next um, paragraph actually strikes me as the best thing in that whole letter. Yeah, you want to you, 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 you want to pick up the thread here? Human nature in no form of it could bear prosperity. That peculiar tribe of men called conquerors, more remarkably than any other, have been swelled with vanity by a series of victories. Napoleon won so many mighty battles in such quick succession and for so long a time that it was no wonder his brain became completely intoxicated and his enterprises rash, extravagant, and mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Napoleon, for Adams, is a good man gone bad. Right. He's a, he's a person. And, and moreover, he's not that much worse than Wellington. Mm-hmm. His, his Napoleon's main problem is that he kept winning. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> like, like Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> did, Napole- did Napoleon have tiger blood? Is, is, that, is that the inference? I think so. All right. For that but, natural but, aristocracy. But as opposed to Adams, right, who was just this magnificent failure. So I, <laughs> he's 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 presenting here as success is the vice, like success is what makes bad statesmen. I, I, I don't think this is as naked an act of self-preservation as I just made it sound. But I, I don't I don't think it's a coincidence that he's he's saying too much success leads you into trouble. And oh, by the way, I, uh, I've never had any success. <laughs> I'm the least popular president for the next hundred years. Well, whatever you can say of John Adams, he didn't go mad on, you know, endless victory. <laughs> Um, By the way, you'll notice Jefferson says his problem is he was really good in the military and really bad in the uh, mm-hmm. in the in the well, whatever the the French White House is. I can't even think of it. But he he was he, he was he was good in war and not good in peace. The the Maison Blanc. <laughs> yeah. Um, which, which honestly, I have a hard time fathoming personally because I mean Napoleon's. Civic reforms lasted a whole heck of a lot longer than his territorial expansions. But yeah. I guess Jefferson couldn't have known that in 1813. Well, yeah, but, you know, that's because other countries had to do with taking away the territorial <laughs> expansions. And the yeah, but they also reinstalled a monarch, but the monarch, I mean, couldn't defy the people by taking away what Napoleon had given to them. So it's kind of a Magna Carta situation. Well, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so like, if I were to assess Napoleon's legacy, it would be exactly opposite of the way that Jefferson does. <laughs> I, I think it's interesting, though, that they both differ on how bad Napoleon is in comparison to Britain. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, Je- we, for, you know we, forget, we like, forget, though, that France was our ally and, and Britain was our enemy. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, well, Jefferson's which, which makes Jefferson's nice letter things. even more remarkable, right? Yeah, I mean, since Jefferson, after all, acquired a big hunk of North America from Napoleon. <laughs> well, and, and Jefferson's the most notable Francophile of the Founding Fathers. Yeah. I mean, he, he loves France. Well, just not Napoleon. He's wow. Corsican. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's not like it's well. It's also not like Napoleon completely represents France, but close enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, close enough if you're Napoleon. <laughs> well, I mean, or if you're a Republican. I mean, Napoleon was the figure who stood against the Bourbon monarchy yeah. more than any other figure. Yeah. Does anybody do? You, do either of you know what Jefferson's attitude toward the French Revolution was? That I don't know. Because, well, you know, your attitude toward the French Revolution in the late 18th century is almost impossible to predict based on mm-hmm. your attitude on the American Revolution. Like, you, you would think if you were in favor of one, you'd be in favor of the other. But, in fact, there's a lot of people who like one and not the other or, like, neither of them or, like, both, whatever. It's, it's impossible to predict. I don't know what his attitude was. No, I don't mm-hmm. know either. Yeah. Yeah, no insight there. But, I mean, my, my guess is that you know, if if I had to guess, I would guess that Jefferson was probably kind of a fan at the beginning, but then as things progressed, was kind of like, duh! <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you guys? You you need to believe in the principles of Christianity. <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever those are. Not cutting people's heads off. I'm going to agree on that one. I like well, that anyway, they both David, call him Bona. All right, Dave, let's move on to Plato's Republic then. What does he what do the two have to say about it? Well, if they can't entirely agree on Napoleon, um they're they're pretty chummy about Plato. Uh uh yeah, Plato's just the worst, man. <laughs> you know, um it all starts with Jefferson saying, yeah, I finally had some time to read Plato's Republic. I was really looking forward to this, and this is awful. <laughs> um, while wading through the whimsies, purialities, and an unintelligible jargon of this work, I laid it down often to ask myself, how could it have been that the world would have so long considered to give reputation to such nonsense as this? Ah. <laughs> uh. Plato, ah, uh, and 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 even for uh, oh, is it is, is it Cicero that like how does Cicero like this? That's mm-hmm. we, we like Cicero. How could Cicero like it? Um, you know, it's uh, anyway. It's it's really really funny that they they don't like Plato. They regard him as 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 mystical and vague and weird and. Probably the reason why there's a trinity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, they hate him some trinity. <laughs> well, I mean, this is you know Adams immediately takes it in in that direction. Um, he says uh, he, he, when when he calls Catholic Christianity Platonic, Pythagoric, Hindu, and Kabbalistic Christianity, which is Catholic Christianity. <laughs> Um, uh, which also he thinks is going to die pretty soon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, but, but he's still, he, he still could be right. Cause he says it could take a couple hundred years. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I kind of don't think so. Um, yeah, the, 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 what, what they seem to take, uh, umbrage with in Plato is his, uh, I guess his idealism, um, and and in particular, what they see as the the effect that he had on um, Christianity, in particular, of uh, of making 
is is it Jefferson who says they took all the easy stuff that Jesus said and just made it needlessly complicated because they got bored? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, also not a new idea. <laughs> uh, you know, I, even if I wasn't convinced that all the founding fathers were Christians, I, I, I kind of had, had a... a, a a sense that they were generally, you know, fairly sensible, educated guys. I don't know if I want the founding. I don't know if I want these founding fathers founding my country anymore. They're. It's going to lead get, a revolution. Yeah, if they don't get how Plato's important, even if they don't agree with him, I yeah, just don't. Yeah. They also object to the politics of the republic, right? I mean, they 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 don't right. like they don't like how anti-democracy uh, the republic is. I mean, it's essentially a totalitarian state. So you could imagine right. you could imagine them reading that and being disgusted by it. Well, totalitarian for the rulers. I mean, that's that's where it gets amusing for me is that Adam says, "Oh my gosh, this guy thinks that the people who run the show shouldn't have any property." That's barbaric. <laughs> but but it's it's so i i don't know he's he's so situationally anchored i guess that's the the funny thing about reading this to me is is just the degree to which jefferson and adams i i think maybe i don't know about you guys but i think maybe even adams more than jefferson Mm -hmm. the degree to which they cannot see outside of their own time just how locked in they are to their their age. Mm-hmm. They need to they need to read them some old books. Well, and and again, it's interesting that I mean, you know, this sheds light on the fact, and you know, we we talked about this somewhat in the C.S. Lewis episode that mm-hmm. he is decidedly a post Enlightenment thinker, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, his project is intelligible only insofar as he's responding to. Adams and Jefferson, and then, of course, you know, Newton and Voltaire and Rousseau, um, you know, what we think of as, you know, sort of our own Christian humanist project is Mm -hmm. something that only makes sense after the Enlightenment, and not only because we do it via podcast. Mm -hmm. Well, education, we need to talk about it, too. Mm -hmm. Um, Hold up, real quick, just my favorite bit from Adams' letter. He says... He basically says, you read The Republic? Well, I'll raise you one. I read all the dialogues a few years ago, and I only learned two things. One, that if you cough hard enough, it'll cure the hiccups. And two, that Ben Franklin plagiarized his idea that farmers shouldn't have to fight in wars. (laughs) He also points out he read it with French and Italian translations and English and, and like, three versions of the Greek. Uh Look how erudite I am. (laughs) Anyway, David, go on to education. My apologies. What a tool. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, the, you know, they, they 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 talk about education, and they seem to think that it's not going well. Um, uh, you know, Jefferson talks about petty academics who who possess Latin and some Greek and knowledge of the globes in the first six books of Euclid, and then just sort of turn loose their pupils on the world with uh, just taste enough of learning to be alienated from industrious pursuits, not enough to do service in the ranks of science. (laughs) Um, Yeah, it seems to be a degree. 
And then Adams, uh, I, I thought kind of hilariously, he was like, oh, education. I never really thought about that much. <laughs> and then and then starts to trying to figure out, um, what topics should we teach? Well, uh, uh, theology we will leave to Ray Durham Neuwent. Anyway, and Paley, instead of Luther, Zinzendorf, Swedenborg, Wesley, Whitfield, Thomas Aquinas, and or Volebius, uh, um, which, <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> yeah, I, he, mostly he seems to be asking questions. What should we teach? I guess we should do geography and astronomy and history and stuff. Right. That sounds okay. I. I don't know. It's it's just really really funny to 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 hear him talk about education in this in this haphazard way. Right, and, and it's like, especially amusing because his son John Quincy Adams, uh, the historian of American education, James Berlin, holds him up as one of the great educational theorists of the early republic. Huh. They didn't get it from his dad. No, that's for sure. <laughs> oh man. Well, once again, the emperor, the 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 founding fathers seem to have no clothes. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, what do you what, what 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 am I what am I not noting other than the the cure for hiccups? Well, I'll just add real quickly that you know this is one of those things where again you can see that you know these two, for all the brilliant thoughts they had, and for the mad, all the mad scientist inventing that Jefferson did, certainly had blind spots in their own inquiry. Mm-hmm. Well, anyway, listeners, uh, normally we'd have a sort of out-the-door question, but I'm going to call an audible this morning because Michael does have to go teach. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and call this episode to a close. I want to thank my host, co-hosts, uh, David Grubbs and Michael Farmer. Uh, David, do you have any notion yet of what we might talk about next week? Well, it's another decimal episode. Um, would you have any aversion to referring to the old English well? Let's hit it. <laughs> All right. Dream of the rude. Dream of the rude it shall be. Oh, man, I we'll can talk- never go on vacation because this is what happens. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, listeners, we get to go. We get to get medieval again next week. So look forward to that. In the meantime, you can find us at ChristianHumanist.org. You can email us at TheChristianHumanist at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook as well as on iTunes and Stitcher. Please leave us those iTunes reviews. Remember, that's the most popular distributor of podcasts, and the more ratings we get there, the more frequently we turn up on searches. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Zach Schmidt is our intern. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. This is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs saying, Let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. So the sun.